Good morning. Take your Bible now, would you, and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Welcome to you if you're visiting with us today. We're working through the letter that we call Ephesians, the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus that we call Ephesians. We're going to begin chapter 3 this morning. While you're turning there, I wanted to say an additional word about the um, what we're calling the New Believers class. You may have sort of tuned that out because you're thinking, I'm not a new believer, but uh, let me just sort of remind you that one of the things that we need to do is we need to have a firm grasp on what some people call the fundamentals of the faith, some of the crucial things that enable us to be able to follow Christ and please Him. And that's what that class is about. It's just going back again to the basic fundamental things that are absolutely essential for every single one of us. So if somebody asks you, what are some of those fundamental things that I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, must have really down well in order to please Him? If you're not sure how to answer that, then I want to invite you to go to, you don't have to be a new Christian uh, to go, this is like fundamentals. So I want to invite you, information is in your bulletin, so consider that if you would. It will strengthen your faith. Well, we've been working through Ephesians. We come now to Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, and our text this morning is the first 13 verses. If you're new here again, then we just work through the Word of God uh, as best we can. And we're in this one of the most wonderful places in all of, all of the Word of God. Ephesians tells us that God has a plan. We don't know what our plan is sometimes, but God has a plan. And it's an incredible plan, a magnificent plan, a, a glorious plan. And God is working it out. He's working His own plan out. And we, the church of Jesus Christ, those who are in Christ, are central to His plan And that we actually have, Paul says in chapter 1, an inheritance, what he calls the blessings from God that are found in Christ. That the first chapter is Paul saying, do you know how rich you are in Christ? And if you're like me, when you first became a Christian, you knew about forgiveness of sin, but you then began to discover, and it takes a whole lifetime to discover the, the realities of the riches that God has given to us. This is called growing up. And growing mature and learning what God has done for us. So in chapter 1, Paul details some of those blessings that we have in Christ. Many things that we didn't even know about. And he talks about those. And they're amazing things that God has given to us. And then he begins to pray. And he prays, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Which is an interesting phrase that I sort of translate as, I'm praying that you will get it. This won't just be a head knowledge kind of thing where you think, oh, God did that and that and that and that for me. But this will, this will change your life by what it is that God has actually done for you. Paul prays that you will know this, that the know will not just be another notebook or some notes filled out, but it will be an actual experience of your life, that you will know how rich you are in Christ and what he has done for you. I don't know about you, but I run into too many of us who think we're really poor when in fact we're incredibly rich in Christ. Then we looked at chapter 2. Chapter 2 follows right after chapter 1. I'm just wanting to see whether or not you're listening. Um, and, and in chapter 2, Paul talks about how what God has done for us to make us into what he calls one new man or one new humanity that God has actually brought Jew and Gentile together, which... For you, it might seem like, well, that's just an odd thing. We don't talk about Jews and Gentiles anymore. It doesn't really matter. I want to say to you, you're probably a Gentile. 
Or maybe you're a Jew. We have a few Jews here, but you're probably a Gentile. And if this wasn't true, you'd be in deep trouble. Can I just say that to you? This is all about the nations and the people of God. And so this is an incredible thing that Paul unveils in chapter 2, that God has brought, made one new humanity that has broken down a barrier of hostility between Jew and Gentile and brought them together and made them one in Christ. And then Matt talked last week about how God is now building us up into what he calls a holy temple. God is doing something in the church to change us. And now we come to chapter 3. And it's similar to what Matt talked about last week. If you were here last week, you remember he talked about this is a complex portion of the Word of God. Paul has this ability to go pretty deep and pretty fast with a lot of thoughts that are frankly difficult to follow. So you're really going to have to apply yourself. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You're going to have to love God with your mind right now as you open the Word of God. So I want to ask you again, find a Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. It's important that you follow along in the Word of God. Reach out and take one of those in the pew in front of you. If you're not sure where it is, it's page 1157. And we're going to read the first 13 verses together. Now I want to ask you, would you stand together with me and let's read the Word of God. Follow along. In your translation, if you would, Ephesians 3, verse 1. Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Does your Bible translation have a dash right there? Uh, Remember that. Okay. Verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Thank you. You may be seated. So you can see on reading of that, that's one of the reasons why we ask you to read your Bible, to read it through several times so that you'll be prepared for what's happening now. Can I ask you again, will you, if you have neglected to read Ephesians, will you please read Ephesians in preparation for this morning? Two weeks from today, I want to talk to you about verses 14 to 21, which is, in my opinion, one of the most incredible places in all of the Word of God. Um, when I came to Cedar Mill Bible Church a long, long time ago, this was the first message I preached. And I was trying to figure it out then, and I'm still staggered by it. So two weeks from today, we'll continue. Next Sunday on Easter, I have a little bit of a different message for you. But, okay, back to verse 1. You notice how Paul begins. He begins with, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, 
dash. Then he goes off on what we call a rabbit trail. Or it's a digression is a, is a more um, kind way to say it. Uh, because what happens to him, and I remember Paul is, he's not writing this probably, he's dictating it to somebody else who is writing it down. So he begins talking, and as soon as he says the word Gentiles, his mind goes off, and he begins to talk about Gentiles. And, and, and I'm so glad he did this digression, because in these verses we learn some things that you would never otherwise know. And it's just a fascinating place in the Word of God. So Paul sort of goes off on a sidetrack, from verse 2 through verse 13. And then if you look at your Bible and go back to verse 14, you see that he uses the same words again, for this reason. And then he starts talking about how he's going to pray for them. Because Paul knows that he's talking about deep things here. And he's talking about things that are difficult for us to grasp. And that we're going to need the Spirit of God to be our teacher. We're going to need God to help us to actually understand. Now, Matt talked last week about how difficult some of this scripture is, how difficult it is to try to teach through it. We could spend hours sort of figuring out some of the depth of what Paul is saying, even in these verses. And I thought, well, I just want to pull out what I regard as seven, like, big truths for you that I think have relevance to your life and my life and what right out of this scripture. So let me suggest these these things for you that, that are taught by Paul in this portion of the Word of God that I, I'm hoping will help you. So, let's go to the first one. Then, in your note sheet, I wrote, Mystery and Revelation teach us much about God. Mystery and Revelation. Now, you may have noticed in reading this, the word mystery and revelation are repeated several times. Now, these are words that we don't use very often. I don't know when you use the word revelation lately. Um, or mystery, uh, we think of mysterious, you know, strange, but the Bible doesn't use it that way. But I, wa- I want you to think for a moment about what this teaches you about God. Think about God. What fills your mind when you try to think about God and what he's like? These are some of the most important thoughts you ever think, is what you think about God when you think about God. So I want you to consider God for a moment, particularly in relation to these two words, mystery and revelation. Follow follow along with me here. God knows stuff. He's really, really smart. You still with me? He knows a lot of stuff. He knows way more than we do. That's one of the reasons he's God and we're not. He doesn't tell us everything. Have you noticed that? God knows so much and he doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't reveal everything to us. He could, but he doesn't. Why not? Have you ever asked this? How come he isn't telling me? Seems like he ought to tell me. I mean, he loves me, right? And I love him, so... You ever think this way? So think about God and the immense knowledge that God has. The theologians say things like, God knows everything that can be known. That God knows so much more than we will ever know. There will always be a great gulf separated between uh, separating us and what we know and what God knows. Even in heaven, we will never know everything that God knows. God is not obligated to reveal things to us, but he does. And he does for our good. Think about your, many of you are parents, you raise children. When you raise children, you realize, I know stuff you don't know. 
And But then you teach your children. You teach them things that you think are good. You tell them truth that you think are going to be good for them. But you don't tell them everything, right? Because they're not ready for everything that you know already. There has to be a period of time. They have to sort of grow and be responsive and sometimes even actually ask. So here we are as parents, and we know stuff that our children do not know, and so we teach them, but we don't tell them, we don't tell them where we hid the Christmas presents. When they're young, we don't teach them how to make a fire. Right? It comes later, maybe, right? You, you don't even, you don't tell them about all the problems of life, do you? You withhold some things from them for their good. So, in terms of revelation, you reveal things to your children that you think are best, but you withhold some things, so God is much like that. He knows things that are for our good, and He knows so much more than we know, and so He reveals things. God, listen, God teaches and trains us by revelation and mystery. He reveals things, and some things are mystery. He reveals things about himself and about his purpose. He's doing it right now in this portion of the Word of God. Let me suggest these four things for you. This is not in your notes, by the way, so you won't find it there. The first thing is, is that some things God reveals to everyone. The theologians call this general revelation. That God tells everybody in the whole world who are willing to hear it. For example, um, Romans chapter 1 talks about God revealing his nature and his power through that which has been made, creation. Creation reveals the greatness of God. For everyone who will look, they will see the power and the wisdom of God in creation. It is a general revelation to all mankind. Are you with me? The second thing I want to say to you is, is that God, some things God never reveals to anyone. You know this, don't you? Some things God, they're secret things. That belong only to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. In other words, God has some things that he's not telling you. He's not telling me. He hasn't told anybody. He may never tell anybody. Some things belong only to God. And God in his own great knowledge knows things that he may not tell anybody. The third thing is, is that God reveals to his children for their good. But some things God reveals to children for their, to his own children for their good. This is what you might call special grace or special revelation. This is, for example, sometimes people wonder, why do you, why do you do so much in the book? I mean, you devote an awful lot of time and effort and energy to studying this. Why do you do that? It's number three. That God reveals to his children for their good certain things. When you believe this is the word of God, God's very thoughts written down and protected for you, then you will see that God is revealing truth to you and he will teach you things that you would never otherwise know. Are you still with me? This is why we study the Bible, by the way. So I want to say to you, read the Bible. It will help you to understand truth about God. God will reveal so many things out of the... Think about all the things that you have learned from the Bible from the book about God and about life and about yourself and about his plan and his purpose. He reveals these things. His special grace is given to you if you will believe it. Even that verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29, Moses said, the secret things belong to, to God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children so that we may follow and obey God. And that's number three. So then there's a fourth category. Some things are mysteries. Some things are mysteries that 
that things that are hidden for a time and then revealed. This is a very unique definition of mystery. It's not the way that we use the word sometimes. If you hear the word mystery related to a TV show, it's probably about some ghost in some building somewhere, some goofy. So, but the Bible never uses the word mystery like that. Paul uses the word mystery again and again and again. And listen carefully now. My friends, you need, as a follower of Jesus Christ, somebody who believes the Bible and trusts in Christ, you need to know that what revelation and mystery are. Can I suggest this to you? You need to know this, right? So revelation is like these things, but mystery is something that is hidden for a period of time, and then it is revealed. And Paul was just really good at this about revealing mysteries, that he knew some things that were given to him by revelation. He would have never known that this was the truth unless God had revealed this mystery to him. Are you still tracking with me? So mystery requires a revelation. So God had revealed to the Apostle Paul some the meaning of some mysteries, and then he is passing them on to the Ephesians and to us and in other places in the Word of God. You say, what are some examples of mysteries? Well, Romans 11 talks about this whole mystery of the fact that the Jews would not accept their Messiah. If you would have asked any Jew before Jesus came, will you accept your Messiah when he shows up, what do you think they would have said? We will worship him, we will serve him, we will obey him, we will follow our Messiah. And then he came and he died on a cross. And that threw them. Romans 11 talks about the mystery of the fact that the Jews did not receive their Messiah But Gentiles entered in, and God brought the Jew and the Gentile together in one Christ, one Messiah. And this was what Paul called a mystery in Romans 11. Another mystery is in Colossians 1, verse 26 and 27. It reads something like this. This mystery that has been kept kept hidden for ages is now disclosed to the saints. It is the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, that's a familiar phrase to you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. How many of you know this phrase? But did you know that was a mystery? Think about the Jews again. They had no idea when their Messiah came that he would be the Son of God. They had no idea that he would come primarily to suffer and die and rise again the third day and ascend into heaven and to send his own spirit to be in people. They had no idea that, the, that a Christian, a Christ one, a follower of the Messiah, would be identified by these two great, great realities. They would be in Christ and Christ would be in them. This is a great mystery that they would be in Christ and that Christ would be in them. They had no idea that Jesus would live. Do you believe Jesus lives in you? You believe a very mysterious thing. If you wonder about that, tell somebody, tell your neighbor. You know, I believe Jesus lives in me. When's the last time you told somebody like that who had no clue? I mean, they would think you are a real nutcase, right? But you believe this. You do? For real. You believe it. You believe the Spirit of God lives in you and that wherever you go, you take the Spirit of God with you. You believe that? Wow, man, we are a strange bunch. In terms of what the world thinks, right? This is a mystery. There are many mysteries. You know, Paul talked about that in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. And this is a mystery that was not known at all until it was revealed by Jesus and then by Paul. 
So, mystery and revelation. Mystery and revelation do some things for us. They humble us. They teach us God is in charge. We've got to have stuff revealed to us. We're like children. And there are mysteries that we don't know about. Revelation and, and mystery draws us to Him for His truth. We say, tell us more. You want to learn? Do you want to learn? Do you want to learn about God's revelation? Do you want to learn more truth about who Jesus is and what He's like? Do you want to learn more truth about the Bible? Do you have this hunger in you? Do you? I mean, serious? I mean, is it authentic and real for you? Let me see your hands. Where did that come from? Did you have that? Have you always had that? Isn't that interesting that you have this desire? You see, it's mystery and revelation that cause us to learn to live by faith, not by sight. So, that's the reason why we look so carefully at this scripture. Okay, let's go on. Second thing, we rejoice that God's plan is for all people. We rejoice that God's plan is for all people. It's in your notes. Go on to the next one if you would. All people. You may not have been enthralled by the whole Jew-Gentile thing, but I want to tell you, you're here because of the Jew-Gentile thing. You would never have known. You would have never been in, right? Think again about what you know about the Bible. It's divided up into Old Testament and New Testament. You know this? Go back to the Old Testament and think about the Old Testament saints. They thought that they were the chosen people of God, the Jewish people. Were they the chosen people of God? Really? They really were. Right? They had so much given to them. They had all the blessings. They had the law and the tabernacle and, you know, they had the prophets and they had the kind of glory of God. They had, they had, uh, miracles happen to them. They were given the land. They were given all the promises of a Messiah. And they were given blessing after blessing after blessing, given to God's chosen people. And after a while, they started saying, yes. And they stopped caring about anyone else. Can you imagine a people who would receive a whole bunch of blessing from God and not care about the nations? I'll let you make that application yourself. So, this is what they did. And so what God, what God did was, He said, My plan was always to bless the nations. The promise to Abraham was always about, Through you I will make you a blessing to all nations. It was always the purpose and plan of God that the Jewish people would be the chosen people of God to be a light to the nations. And so they made a temple and it had a huge courtyard of the Gentiles where the Gentiles would come and find out about Jehovah. It was always about being an example. And that's why Paul now, at this place in time, says in verse 2... That God has called me and given me what he called, what the NIV translates as an administration of God's grace. Administration has within it the word ministry. Some Bibles translate it stewardship. Other people say this is a, he's a manager. He's a steward, a manager, a minister of what? Grace. God, God reached out of heaven took the Apostle Paul and said, you are going to give grace to the Gentiles because I am bringing them all together. This is the mystery that is now revealed to you, Paul, by revelation. And then you will tell all the nations, you will start a movement that will penetrate into all the nations because the heart of God was always for the world. So what is the mystery here? It's found in verse 6. We'll put it on the screen. Here it is. This mystery is that through the gospel, the word gospel means what? 
Good news. Through the gospel, the Gentiles... Who are the Gentiles? Us, my friends. I mean, right? This is so good. And if this hadn't happened, where would you be? The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. We inherit together with Israel... Members together of one body, there is one body, Jew and Gentile, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. What is the word that's repeated three times there? Together, together, together. Heirs together, members together, shares together in Christ. In Christ, Jew and Gentile are brought together. So now, here's, here's the application for you Gentiles. I'm a Gentile too. The application is is that you stand with God's chosen people. The New Testament also says we are the chosen people of God, a royal priesthood. We are now the chosen people of God. That God has brought Jew and Gentile together and all the promises that God ever gave to the Jewish people are now promises to you and to me that we are together in this. This is the incredible plan of God. God said, I reached down and took the Jewish people, this small little tribe of people. Somebody say, how odd of God to choose the Jews. You ever heard that? Now he's chosen us. This is huge. You get in by grace through faith, right? When Paul understood this, it changed his whole life. It transformed him. And he saw God has revealed to me a mystery that now he is wrapping his arms around the whole world and he's sending the gospel to the whole world and I get to be one of the first and primary ambassadors of it because God is creating one new humanity of Jew and Gentile and everyone who will turn to Christ. Third thing I put in your notes is we worship and serve or we worship and love Jesus. All we need is found in him. See, what I did is I read these verses and this sort of just, I don't know what, what happens to you when you read the Bible, but often what happens to me is there will be certain phrases that just sort of jump off the page and sort of smack you in the head. And I have to stop and think about it for a moment. Here's the phrase that smacked me this time. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Some of your Bibles say the boundless riches of Christ or the fathomless riches of Christ. In other words, there's too many riches to ever know all of them. Here's the application. Do you think of Christ that way? Are you impressed by Jesus? If somebody pushes your button a little bit, you say, oh yeah. But do you, like, do you go through life thinking about the unsearchable riches of Jesus? Do you think, wow, Jesus is staggering. He's amazing. Christ is has unsearchable, boundless riches in him. I, If I'm ever going to know everything that God has for me, it's going to be found in Christ. Therefore, my whole life passion then has got to be about pursuing Christ and learning about Christ. Are you, are you doing this? Please tell me yes. And don't you sense the, the, the work of God to try to sort of coerce you into doing this? to try to press you towards Jesus, to try to get you to see that he is the pearl of great price, that he is wonderful. But our problem is, is that every now, you know, we just go through life and then, boy, this seems like riches to me, you know. Oh, oh, that, this is, oh. And, and the Bible keeps pulling us back to what Paul called Jesus Christ. He is. 
And everything about this that Paul writes, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ. The mystery is the mystery of Christ. We share together in the promises found in Jesus Christ. The eternal purpose of God is found in Christ Jesus. It is in Him and through Christ that we have access to God. Everything is about Jesus. It's, it's as if Paul was very Christ-centered. What about you? This challenges me. I don't know what it does to you. It challenges me. He, he just, everything was about Jesus. He just come, kept coming back again and again to Jesus. Sometimes some people say, you know, you, you, you're always talking, you just keep coming back to Jesus. Yeah. You will never find a greater treasure than everything that is that you are and every need that you have and every dream and vision that you ever thought of or will ever think of, every problem that you have ever faced, every struggle in your life, every failure, every difficulty, everything is wrapped around Jesus somehow. Jesus is right there in the middle of it. And your destiny in Christ is to be with Jesus. It's about Jesus. It always has been about Jesus. Do you value other riches more? If you miss Christ, you miss all. If you find Christ, or if Christ finds you, you have all. My friends, never forget this. And if you're wondering, what, what's, why is this stuff happening? I can promise you that whatever it is that's, quote, happening in your life, it's going to be about Jesus somehow. God is doing some stuff in your life and allowing some things in your life to bring you back again to the deepest treasure, the real pearl of great price. Poor thing. This is amazing. This is something you would have never learned if you didn't read the Bible. Poor thing. We are amazed and obligated as we see God's purpose for the church, that would be us, to demonstrate his wisdom to the heavenly realms. Really? Look at verse 10 and 11. His intent, that is God's intent, was that now through the church, that's God's people, that's not some church somewhere else, that's all the people of God, of which we are a part, that his intent was that now through the church, the, manif- the word manifold means multifaceted or multicolored. The, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has a plan that involves us. And it involves us in a way that we never would have guessed. That God is apparently, not apparently, this verse teaches us, that God is saying, you are my people, you are the church, you are in Christ, you are one new humanity, you are a temple being built, a holy temple being raised to the glory of God, and by the way, you are teaching angels. Is that what it says? That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Did you know that God is doing things not just for human beings, but he's doing things for angels? 
This, the theologians have a lot of fun with this, and they're trying to figure out, is, are we talking about evil angels, demons? Are we talking about holy angels? Or are we talking about both? Are we talking about the powers that exist in the world? Is that, 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 that is also spirit? What are we talking about here? All we know is, is that we're talking about the heavenly realm, something that is invisible to us. There is a reality where God is. You believe this? There is this thing called the heavenly... He's already talked about it twice in Ephesians, and he will talk about it again in chapter 6 when he talks about the armor of God and our enemy not being against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers in the heavenlies. Same word. So I, I want to tell you that something you may not have thought about recently, and that is, is that there are, there's angels around. Most of them probably went with our kids. <laughs> Jesus talked about that. Remember that? They're angels. Children, their angels behold the face of the Father. Interesting. That's where people come up with the idea of guardian angels. Hmm. Think you got one? Think there are angels here? In this room? Now you're getting mysterious. The Bible doesn't say very much, so I'm not going to say very much. And be careful about going too far on this one. But it, you still have to look at this and you have to say, yes, God is up to something with the church. God is up to something with the people of God. He's trying, he's saying, look, he's saying to the angelic beings, if you will, he's pointing to us, the church in the world, and saying, do you see my wisdom? That's an interesting idea. Have you read the first chapter of Job lately? You remember that? How the evil one appears in the presence of God and points Job out? And then God gives him permission to whack Job. And the whole book is all about God demonstrating his wisdom and his power and his grace to the evil one. Read it. I suggest to you that you think about this a little bit. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why I so love the church. I don't love the church because we we always get it right. We don't. I don't love the church because we're so wonderful. I love the church, of course I'm a pastor, I should love the church, but I love the church because God so deeply loves the church and that Jesus died for the church and that Jesus is not going to die for something that only has a purpose for this world. Do you know that God has a purpose for this world and the heavenlies? Remember how Jesus said, pray like this, pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the manifold wisdom of God. The more that the will of God is being done on earth through his people on earth, the more impressed angels are. And the more they see the wisdom of God. He's actually training and teaching angels more by what he's doing in the world through us. Do you know this? I never would have guessed this. You may look at the world and say it's chaos. No one's in charge, right? It's absolutely, there's no plan, no strategy. You know, we ought to be destitute and depressed. And God says, oh, no, you know, I brought together one body together and I'm teaching the angelic beings about my great wisdom through you. The church is an eternal object lesson to the heavenly beings and will always be. And God is now doing on earth what he intends to do in heaven someday. And guess who gets to be the crucial part of this whole thing? Us. 
So if you start thinking, well, it's all about me and all the little stuff that's happened in my life, you know, you, you miss the great cosmic plan that God is writing a huge drama and he's the director and the producer and the writer and he's working this thing out and we are the actors on the stage and we are not the audience. Heaven is the audience. Are you following what I'm trying to say here? It's amazing, just an amazing. I just want to tell you, you teach angels. Think about it. Okay, fifth thing. We learn about trusting God in difficult circumstances. Oh, we need to listen faster. Okay. We learn about trusting God in difficult circumstances. I just want to draw your attention to the way Paul describes himself. You know, the way in which you describe yourself or the way in which you think about yourself is crucial. Do you see him calling himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus? Great power in that little word, O-F, of. In, in chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. It's just fascinating that Paul described himself as not a prisoner of the Jews, not a prisoner of the Romans, not a prisoner of Caesar, but prisoner of Jesus. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. He's identifying himself that way. Think about this now. This is not an easy life. He's been in jail for five years. You know, it was two years in Caesarea, now three years in Rome. He was chained to a Roman guard. This is not simple. He, you know, or not easy. You know, it's just a... You know, you'd think you'd want to be free and that everything would be about getting freedom and so that I can go where I want to go. And, and Paul said, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why did he say that? What does he mean when he says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord? Think about what you can learn from Paul about trusting God in difficult circumstances. Here's Paul. His perspective was that he saw himself as the prisoner of Christ. Think about it. He didn't know what was going to happen to him. He didn't know whether he was going to live or die. He, he had a Jesus-centered perspective, even on his imprisonment. He was focusing more on what God called him to do than upon his personal circumstances, which is pretty amazing. He was giving himself to ministry to other people, even though he was suffering himself. That's what love is, by the way. He identifies with the very will of God. He knows he's been personally given grace. And that he believes more grace is coming to him, that he has not exhausted the grace of God. He's confident even in his prison that he can trust God for what's going to happen. I mean, this is a guy who, who is chained to a guard and has been for years, as far as we can tell. And he is, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. It's like no whining here. It's almost like he boasts in it. So what does that say to you and to me in your circumstances? Does Jesus have anything to do at all with your circumstances? Can can I suggest to you, think about your circumstances right now. Can Can I suggest to you that isn't what you are experiencing right now your opportunity to trust God? Isn't what you are experiencing right now your opportunity to trust God? I'm trying to do that in these days. This is my opportunity to trust God in a way I never have before. What about you? And doesn't God do this again and again and again in our life? The circumstances change and the Lord remains the same. And the one who rescued you and saw you through it in the past... He's going to see you through it again. You say, I may die. Yeah, you might. Sorry. 
But that's not the main thing, is it? Even for Paul, to depart and to be with Christ is, remember, better by far. We need to reorient our way that we see things and see life. Okay, we need to finish. Sixth thing, we again see God's strategy of choosing unworthy people to do good for others. It's just amazing to me how Paul describes himself. I am the least of all God's people. A lot of people have looked at that and said, this is false humility. You know, it must be hyperbole. He doesn't really mean this. He couldn't possibly be sincere. He is the great apostle to the Gentiles. How could he possibly call himself the least of all God's people? Can I tell you what the clue is here? It's this. The longer you are a follower of Jesus Christ and the more mature you get in Jesus Christ, the more unworthy you will feel. People don't know this. You'll be torn between these two realities of being in Christ and receiving all the blessings of God and being a new creation and called a saint and on your way to heaven and receiving so many of the good things of God and rejoicing in that and so glad and thankful and feeling blessed. And on the other hand, you will feel so incredibly unworthy. Why would, and Paul is the guy who persecuted the church. I think that was a deep anchor, like a thing stabbing his heart, that he persecuted the church when he should have rejoiced in Jesus. He's now persecuting the Christians. And he said, I'm the most unworthy because I did that. And he was constantly receiving grace. I, I, I bring this to your attention to tell you that God loves to work through unworthy people. So welcome. Right? He just delights in doing this, taking people who don't have much much strength. Have you noticed that he does some of his best work through your greatest weakness? Have you learned that yet? That it's not about your great strength, but it's how God works and maybe what you don't have? Oh, so much here. Finally, the seventh thing, we approach God with confidence in him. We approach God with confidence in him. Do you see verse 13? In him, who's him? Christ, and through faith in him, who's him? Christ. We may approach God with freedom and confidence. I don't know if you see it, but there's a great principle of spiritual life found in those first five words. In him, this is my status. This is your status. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you been saved by the blood of Christ? Are you forgiven? All that stuff, is that true of you? Then you are in Christ, right? This is your status. This is who you are. This is what God has done for you. You didn't do anything to deserve this. You didn't earn it. It's a gift from God. It's part of the new creation. It's what God did. He put you in Christ. This is, this is new creation work. This is your status and your reality. This is who you are. This is what you have. This is the stamp of God in your life. This is what a Christian is, someone who is in Christ. You didn't do anything to deserve that. It's a gift from God. Still with me? But then it says, through faith in Him. What is that? That's now, I believe this, and therefore I'm going to believe him now. Right? I'm going to trust him now. I'm going to step out now. I'm going to believe him now. I'm going to, I'm going to rest in him now. I'm going to step out with boldness and confidence to approach God. My friends, I know that you've got stuff happening in your life. And verse 12 tells you, you can come boldly to God. You can... Actually enter into the very presence of God freely and confidently. Why? Because you're really a swell person? No, because you're in Christ. 
And if Christ is welcome in the presence of the Father, guess who else is? His children, you. So you got some needs? What are you going to do about those needs? I want to say you boldly, confidently come to him. Okay, guess what we have an opportunity to do now? If there are angels in this room, they're going to watch what you're about to do. I don't think they can read minds. Only God can do that, I think. I'm not sure. Somebody else might know. But they can certainly watch what happens. But there is one who does read minds. And he will listen to your thoughts in the next five minutes. And my prayer is that you will be Christ-centered in this moment. That you will approach God with boldness and confidence because of what he's done for you. And if you don't know him, oh, we'd love to introduce you to him. But so what you'll do is you'll boldly, confidently come down here and take a piece of bread and take a cup. Why? Why would you boldly, confidently do this? Because you are in Christ and he has invited you to. And I hope what will fill your heart is some gratitude and some worship. Pray with me and let's ask him to help us. Father, we ask you, will you help us now? By the ministry of your Holy Spirit, who we believe lives within us, we turn our hearts back again to Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, who did so much for us. Help us to rejoice in the blessings that we have in Christ. Thank you for the greatness of your love. May we know it. May the eyes of our heart be enlightened so that we will know it's true. And in this moment, when we one more time take a piece of bread and a cup, and we remember the greatest thing he ever did was to give himself for us. And we see again how suffering and glory are related. Let us glory now in the Messiah, our true Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.